You're listening to the Lessons in Real Estate Show, sponsored by Mission First Capital, bringing real estate investment deals for active duty and veteran investors. Your host, Anthony Pinto, searched land, air, and sea to find military investors just like you investing in multifamily and commercial real estate, both active duty and veterans. Hear their stories, learn their lessons, and be inspired by the obstacles they have overcome on their path to financial freedom. Whether you are overseas or stationed at home, if you want to get started as a military real estate investor, this is the show for you. And now your host, Anthony Pinto. I'm so excited to have you guys here today on the revamped new and improved version of the Lessons in Real Estate show. I wanted to refocus on my mission here in life uh, with this podcast, and that is to help teach and inspire 1 million military members and veterans to achieve financial freedom through real estate. And as a part of the March to a Million campaign, my call is to show you the path to freedom of time and money, whether you intend to stay in for 20 years or get out next year. And so listen to the stories of fellow military members and investors just like you struggling, overcoming and achieving success in multifamily real estate and even some of them doing it while active duty and really dig into their lessons learned as well as their failures on their path to success. Uh, But you came here for the show, so let's get to it. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Lessons in Real Estate show. I'm your host, Anthony, and today we have a uh, Sierra entrepreneur. He has bought and developed and sold over $250 million in real estate, and he's also the host of the Greg Dickerson Show podcast. Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, Anthony, thanks for having me, and thank you for your service. I appreciate it, and thank you for, for your service as well. I'm sure it's been quite a many years since, uh, since you served, though. Long time ago. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I read through your bio and, you know, talking about you and we, before we hit record, uh, we were kind of chatting a little bit, you know, I've kind of heard your name thrown around in a number of different circles. Some of them, you know, related to multifamily, some of them relate to, to military circles, some of them just, you know, big names that you have, uh, or that you have as, as coaching clients. So I think that you have a lot to share with, you know, with the listeners on, you know, building a business and, and really getting down into, the actual uh, setting up of building a business is, you know, I think a lot of people, me in particular, when I first got started, you know, just started going after properties and started raising capital without really anything else in mind of like actually business, building a business plan and like building a real business. Um, so I think it's valuable to have that upfront, you know, before you get started. But um, so, so that's all to say, I think you have a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to share on this, but um, you know, let's get into to your, your military background and how that led you into real estate or to where you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, my dad was career military and then, you know, every male in my family were all military. My grandfather was a Pearl Harbor survivor. Um, you know, all the men in our family served in the military. Most of them were career. I just did four years out of high school, but my dad went in enlisted and he came out of W2 and he rose through the ranks very quick. He was a bosun, went in as a bosun's mate, uh, yeah, you know, and uh, rose to um, chief and senior chief, and then was frocked as a as a w, as a W one, then retired as a W two, and you know he was one of his tours of duty. We lived in California, then we were stationed in Pensacola, Florida, and he was port services officer at Pensacola NAS, and but when he first landed there, he was brig officer. So 
that was a lot of fun when he was when he was doing that. He used to bring that home to me, and I was you know put on restriction and thirty days in the hole if I did something wrong, that kind of thing. And you know I had to go through inspections in my room. He would bounce the quarter off the bed, and so I was raised in a very strict military disciplinary environment where you follow orders or you get your butt kicked. You know, and don't you know ours is not to do or die. Ours is you know. Ours is not to reason why ours is but to do or die. I mean, that's all I heard growing up, you know, from my dad. But um, whenever I wanted something as a kid, and I'm talking young kid, this was, you know, fourth, fifth grade going into middle school and then into high school, you know, he said, look, if you want something, I'm not going to give you anything. You got to go earn it. You know, you figure out how to make the money to pay for it. So at a very young age, I would go out and I would knock on doors and, you know, rake grass, you know, rake leaves, cut grass, wash cars, whatever. I'd, I'd just, boom, Anthony, my name's Greg. I live down the street. Now, this is a little <laughs> elementary school, you know, kid, right? Uh, probably seven, eight years old. And I'd be like, I need to make some money, you know, for the next belt in my karate class. Can, you know, is there anything I can do for you? I don't care what it is. I'll chop wood, you know, whatever time of the year I'd do whatever you wanted. So that's kind of where it all started from an entrepreneurship standpoint of find a service that you can offer to others that's valuable in exchange for what it is you're looking for. And for me, I needed things. So it wasn't money. It was the money to get the things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a plan. I wanted this thing. So I needed to go earn the money to get it. And I reverse engineered the business plan. If it was, you know, 50 bucks, then I knew I had to cut three yards that, that weekend or rake, you know, a couple of yards or wash 10 cars or whatever it was. And then later on, as I grew up, and then my dad would, you know, for using his equipment, he would charge me a percentage of what I made. So I learned real quick the cost of doing business. And, um, and then later on, as I grew up, like when I started driving and stuff, I started out on a motorcycle <clears throat> and a vehicle. And if I ever used his vehicles or motorcycle, I had to bring them back washed with a full tank of gas, regardless of how I received it. And it was always empty on Friday afternoon when I received it. <laughs> so when he got it back Sunday evening, you know, it was full of gas and all that. So he really taught me discipline, hard work, work ethic, take care of business first. Because like on weekends, when I was a kid, man, I was up at six in the morning, we'd go out and we'd chop wood and, you know, for the winter, we'd go out in the woods, cut down trees, chop wood. I had to clean the pool, you know, cut the grass, wash his cars, clean the garage, man, do all those things before I could go do what I wanted to do on the weekend. And I didn't get paid. That was what I had to do in exchange for having a roof over my head and food on the table. And, uh, you know, we did all the chores around the house. Um, and a lot of it was manual back then. I mean, I didn't have like a weed eater and a blower and all that. I mean, I had those little hand cutters, you know, oh. I've got arthritis really bad too, which it could be, but <laughs> anyways, I was going around the yard edging around our fence with little hand edgers. And I had, you know, a little roller edger to edge the sidewalk and the driveway and, and all that. So, so I was raised on a very, you know, uh, disciplined routine and a hard work ethic. And you know, I wasn't an academic. I didn't do well in school. I wanted to go out and conquer the world as an entrepreneur. So that's how I started. It was all, you know, if you want something, you figure out a way to do it. You create something to get what it is that you want. So that was very fortunate for me as I carried that mindset into my entrepreneurial career. So instead of thinking, you know, I can't do that, I can't afford that, or I can't have that, it's how can I? What do I need to do to get that? Who do I need to become to get the things and create the things that I want in my life. So that's the mindset that I always approached everything from. And that's, that's really inspiring. I mean, it's, you know, you hear of, uh, of a lot of, you know, big entrepreneurs like Steven Schwartzman, uh, CEO of Blackstone, who had a very similar background or similar growing, you know, um, childhood where, you know, their family worked in, uh, you know, and had a family business or, you know, they, after school, they would go and, and do, you know, work another six hours to, you know, 
shoveling coal or snow or, or you know whatever um and and how that built them up to the per- people they are today and and you see that how that has led you to where you are now i mean you know the the amount of real estate that you've been able to buy and sell the you know the serial entrepreneur the fact that you've you know, started 12 different companies i can see how all of that really started from from when you were young and how that you know that entrepreneurial mindset was really instilled in you from the start whether you liked it or not right uh, it was kind of hey i needed this to occur so i need to become this person to get these things that i wanted to make the money I think it's just fascinating. It's such a young age that you you develop that mindset because I, you know, it's it's a lot harder to get that into people when you know they're eighteen, they're twenty, they just got out of college, they have all the student debt, right? They're trying to find a W two job and then try to get them into the entrepreneurial mindset versus when you started, which I'm guessing you were probably younger than ten, right? Trying to do all these jobs. Yeah, eight, nine, uh, ten years old, and right. you know, it was when I could do the the manual labor um aspects you know i could make the bigger money but before that man i was collecting you know aluminum cans coke bottles and trading them in for money i'd go pick them up on the side of the road and put them in my wagon and trade them in to make money uh so i could buy candy at the store and then i would buy boxes of candy and i would separate them and go sell them by the piece to my friends and i'd make more money and buy more candy so back then i wanted candy right so how do you get more candy right. yeah so uh, it was kind of that that whole entrepreneurial thing the other thing was uh, you know, I had a natural uh, gift of gab. I was born with the gift of gab, natural born salesman. So I'd talk to anybody. I had no problem knocking on doors. I had no problem cold calling. I was always, you know, number one in any sales contest in school back when we used the, we used to have the fundraisers, you know, for sports and things where you had to sell candy bars and magazine subscriptions and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I was always number one. And um, the other thing was uh, leadership. So I learned leadership from my dad and, you know, without even knowing it, he taught me how to be a leader. So everywhere I was, I was always picked as the captain, you know, captain of the team. I was a pretty good athlete, but I wasn't the best, but I was the better leader. And I was better at putting the right people in the right places in their positions. I knew who should be playing first, who should be playing third, who should be shortstop, you know, above myself. Like I would put myself where I needed to be, um, you know, in the, in the best and the batting orders and things like that and basketball, the whole nine yards. So. That led into the military career. When I went to boot camp, um, I went in enlisted as well. And my dad, you know, told me what it was all about. So I knew exactly what to expect. It was 1985. Uh, I went in from 85 to 89. And uh, I go to boot camp and, you know, just minding my own business, do my own thing. And, um, you know, I was put in charge of a section. So I was, you know, nominated. I was appointed a section leader by our um, uh, instructor in boot camp. So I was identified right away as a leader in the military. And I always was a leader. Um, in my division and all that. And what a lot of people don't realize about the the military is that it's all about organization, systems, standard operating procedures, discipline. You do what you have to do. You follow orders. You get things done. There's a chain of command, redundancies. But the biggest thing people discount the military is the hard work. I mean, it's hard work, man. When you're out to sea on a ship, you know, you're 12 hours on, 12 hours off, six days a week. You know, it's none of this 40 hours a week, eight hours a day, and then you go do what you want. You're always on. And even on your day off, you have to be ready for, you know, drills, battle stations, you know, fire alarm, whatever it is. And they would do that to you on Sundays, you know, at 5 a.m., you know, jolt you out of your rack to go do some fire alarm, you know, drill or something, you know. So um, or you took your CPR classes or whatever it was, you know, on your off day. So, you know, it's a lot of work. And those things were instilled to me at an early young age. And, uh, you know, and even in the military, uh, you know, I went in when I was 18, came out at what, 22, I guess. And, um, and I carried that throughout my career, the rest of my life. So 
I was never the smartest or brightest guy in the room, but man, you were not going to outwork me. I was the first one in, the last one to leave. You didn't have to tell me what to do. You didn't have, you didn't see me sloughing off. I was busy all day, every day when I had jobs before I started my own companies. And, you know, that was always recognized. And I always rose to the top of wherever I, I was, whatever organization I was in. The problem was there was always a ceiling. There was always only so far you could go. And, you know, so that's ultimately, you know, I'm just a natural born entrepreneur. And that's one of the reasons I stepped out and started my own company because I don't like limitations. Right. So did you, uh, you know, you had a lot of these, these skills and, and um, resourcefulness already kind of instilled in you by, by your dad. Um, you know, when you were actually active duty, uh, you know, and serving, were you also, you know, having side hustles and, and being an entrepreneur then while you were doing, you know, your W2 as well? No, I wasn't able to in the Navy because I was out to sea. You know, I did West Packs and, and, you know, things like that. I was on a battleship. So I didn't have the opportunity to do that in the military because I was traveling and, and working. But uh, after the military, yes, whenever, whenever I was, um, you know, in the civilian world, I always had two jobs, you know, and if I didn't have two jobs, I had a side business in addition to my full-time job, which was construction. The two, only two things I'd ever done after the military, I did retail in the military. So I learned business. Uh, I was a ship serviceman. And, um, you know, we were in charge of all the vending machines, all of the ship stores, you know, barbershops, I guess most people listening to the military, so they know, but in other <laughs> branches, you may not know what that is in the Navy. So it was a good job to have, you know, we ran the laundromat and all that. Uh, if you wanted anything, you had to go through us supply division, you know, that was a great spot to be in. And, uh, yeah, we had a lot of power, so that was fun. But, um, uh, you know, after I got out, um, I did restaurants and construction. I was working in a restaurant when there was a guy that was doing an addition, um, asked me if I'd come clean up after him and he'd pay me 20 bucks. I was like, sure. You know, so that's how I started learning construction. I did work for him and I was a hard worker and he asked me to, you know, do some other work for him. So I kind of started learning from him. And, uh, so then I started my own little business doing my own thing, uh, cause I'm a fast learner and I learned how to do, you know, minor stuff, you know, kind of like handyman, small job kind of stuff and everything kind of grew from there. Wow. That's, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. The, the transition you kind of had from, uh, from military to pretty much doing what you were doing before, right? Doing the construction work or, or manual labor or kind of anything you wanted to, 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 to make money. Um, so, you know, how did that lead you, you know, having a construction job and, and, you know, kind of working that on the side, how did that lead you into the bigger business of, you know, buying, selling and developing real estate? So the way that happened was I was on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. It was a resort area off the coast of, of North Carolina, just outside of Hampton Roads, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia. And um, I was, I, you know, I went there to open restaurants and, and be in the restaurant business. I'm a lifelong surfer. So I wanted to live there. We're all from Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads area. And um, the Outer Banks was my playground. I used to go down there and hang out at the beach and surf and all that. So I wanted to move there, open restaurants and just hang out and surf. So instead of um, doing that, I worked in the restaurant industry one year down there. This was after I'd gotten married, had a couple of kids. It was, you know, 1997. Uh, moved to the Outer Banks. And, and um, instead of opening a restaurant, I started a little handyman remodeling company. I bought a house. I was trying to get an addition done and some other work done on it. Nobody would call me back. So again, just when I was a kid, wherever there's a problem, wherever, wherever there's a need, there's an opportunity. And I'm like, man, nobody will call you back for anything. You couldn't get anything done. And I started talking to my neighbors and they're like, yeah, everybody's so busy building houses. This was, you know, pre-boom cycle. They're like, you know, you can't get anybody to, to do anything for you. So I started a little handyman remodeling company and uh, started, you know, I went down, filed the name uh, with the county. I came up with a name that made it sound like I'd been in business there forever it was Outer Banks Construction. So it sounded like I was there forever with that name. 
went filed it at the county, set up a little um, corporation and just started going knocking on doors. I had neighbors that owned businesses and said, hey, I'll start a little remodeling company. If you need any work done, let me know. I'll, I'll change a door lock, I'll paint, I'll do whatever you want. So my first little job was about a $500 deck addition on a restaurant, took me a day. And I, when I did that, that was more money than I'd ever made in one day. I, I said, man, you know, this is great. I'll never have to worry about money again. And, um, and I grew that company, started from absolutely nothing, had no money, no backers, no nothing started from zero, I had some tools, obviously in a vehicle, but um, just literally going out knocking on doors and earning money from that point on. And seven years, I built that into a $30 million building company. So I started out doing anything and everything. I mean, I'd do a hundred dollar job. Um, and uh, I mean, I'd do something for 25 bucks, you know, whatever it was. And I scaled that up into becoming one of the largest builder developers in the area in a seven year period, $30 million company. And I sold it. And, um, and I started 12 other companies in the service industry along the way while I was doing that, you know, painting company, storm shutter company, electrical, plumbing. Um, I had a pool spot landscaping company. I had a gymnastics cheerleading trampoline school. Um, if you watch the Olympics recently, you saw the people jumping on the trampolines. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, got, that was a community service project, but still it was a, it was a venture. Um, and, you know, probably a few other things, restaurants, I had a couple of restaurants and, and things like that. So it's that serial entrepreneur in me, the, the creator, the builder. And um, as I was going along, um, I started getting into working for other investors that were coming down and buying beach houses, renovating them, selling them. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I was asking them, you know, how they were doing what they were doing. And, you know, they kind of explained to me how it worked and the numbers. And I said, man, I want to do what you're doing. They said, well, you know, do some of these projects for us. And, you know, you can learn, you can see how we do it. So while I was doing that, I was making some money. And a friend of mine was a realtor and he came along and he said, hey, um, you know, you want to do a real estate deal? He said, you know, there's this lot that we can buy over here. My dad's got somebody that, you know, will buy it and pay us, you know, 50,000 more than we're paying for it. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, I got it under contract. We can buy it for a hundred. My dad has a client that'll give us 150. He said, you put up the money, I'll do everything else and we'll split the profit. And I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, can you do that? And he's like, yeah, no problem at all. He said, I have the contract. This guy's willing to pay more. So we went and um, he took care of everything. I put up the money, we split the profit. And that was my first real estate deal, just a little lock flip. And I had no idea you could even do that. Didn't even know. I mean, I'd, I'd owned um, three houses by this time per, you know, primary residences, but I never really thought about real estate as a business until that. And then I started learning about real estate that opened my eyes. And, um, and then I had a good friend who was a real estate developer up in Northern Virginia. And he came down and started teaching me how to build spec houses. We started doing deals together and building spec houses together. So he taught me that. And then I just, everything just evolved from there. Um, you know, I got into land development, commercial development, but you know, at the end of the day, what I did was I created businesses, multiple businesses that generated cash flow that I could use to invest in other assets, real estate. Um, so that was my business model, my plan, very deliberate, very intentional about what I did. Anytime I had any extra money, I would invest it in property. I would not spend it, wouldn't blow it. You know, I mean, I lived well and I had a nice house and all that, but I didn't go spend as much as I could. I reinvested in real estate, reinvested in my business, grew and scaled the company. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how I did it. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. And kind of where you started in all of this to get into all these different construction businesses, to meet with real estate investors, to learn that business and, and ultimately be where you are. I mean, it's, it's kind of the ultimate entrepreneur's dream, right? You, you know, you, you start kind of small and, and kind of hustle your way through it for, for seven years. And you obviously did a very, very good job of building a company to a $30 million from essentially, essentially you, you know, walking around knocking on doors. 
And then that, you know, trampolines you into to numerous other businesses in real estate. Um, so you obviously yeah, have but lot, it was everything. I mean, it was my childhood. Then it was all the jobs I had through high school, then four years in the Navy. And then I worked for seven years after I got out of the Navy, different jobs and had my own little side businesses along the way. Um, so it was, you know, 17 years worth of preparation before I arrived to start that little handyman company that my first year I did 250,000 in sales and thought that I was just knocking it out of the park. Year two, 750. Year three, 1.2. Then 2.7. Then, you know, 8.5. And then, you know, next thing you know, we're doing 30 million. And that's kind of how it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think a lot of, of what you're talking about there is that you actually had a real a business. You had a business plan. You had a plan. You had a, you know, a framework for it. You kind of see like, hey, this is what next year, five years, 10 years looks like. You kind of scaled up that into, you know, a $30 million business. And, uh, you know, we kind of touched on this at the beginning. Um, you know, for me, when I first got started, it was very much about going to buy property and raising capital, right? And that was kind of the two main drives. There wasn't about building a brand. There wasn't about, you know, customer service. There wasn't kind of the, the other aspects of having and building a business. Um, so can you kind of touch on, you know, uh, the main points of start, one, just starting and growing a business, but then also scaling that business up, uh, particularly in, in real estate? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people do the real estate business as a hobby. You know, they don't look at it as a business. And and even some people have side businesses that are just hobbies and, and they don't take it as a business. But, you know, if you want to scale, if you want growth and you want to do big things, you have to have a plan. Number one, you have to have a vision. You have to you have to have a, you have to be able to see what it is you're trying to create in your mind. And that vision can evolve as you go along, but you got to have something. So you have to see yourself and your your enterprise, whatever it is you want to do in very clear, vivid detail, like if you're a multi, multifamily syndicator, you have to see yourself walking up to that, that apartment complex, the size that you want in the area that you want. And you need to visualize yourself walking that property and going through the process of taking that deal down and managing the managers or whatever it is you're gonna do. I mean, literally, what kind of clothes are you wearing? What kind of car did you drive? What does the building look like? You have to be able to visualize yourself doing all that before you actually get there so that you believe that you can actually do it. So that's part of the process. Anything I ever accomplished, I saw myself doing it first. And, and it's not like you just sit down and visualize in this thing. It's just as you go about your day, you're thinking, you're planning, and then you have to take that vision and you have to put it on paper and reverse engineer it. So if you want to get your first deal, you need to see yourself doing it. Then you need to put down on paper, I want my first deal. It's X amount of dollars. In order to do that, I need to raise X amount of money. Again, what do you, who do you have to become and what do you need to do in order to reach that goal? And who do you need to talk to? So if it's a $10 million multifamily building, you're going to need to raise $3 million for a down payment. You're going to need somebody who can qualify for that loan. So those, you, you put that down and you reverse engineer that plan and say, okay, how many people do I need to talk to? If I know people that can invest 100,000 or 50,000 or 25,000, how many do I need to talk to to raise 3 million? And then, um, you know, who do I need to talk to or how many people do I need to bring together so that we can have a balance sheet to take that, that uh, property down and qualify for the loan? And, you know, all of those things and, you know, who are all, all the parts and pieces that you need to bring together along the way? And then what do I need to be doing every single day to make those connections, to make those contacts? Who do I need to become? Where do I need to be? And the people that invest with me, who are they and where do I need to go to meet them, find them? and convey to them that, you know, I know what I'm doing. So 
that's where the plan of what it is that you want to do comes into play. And before all that, obviously, you need to have a name. You need to have a legal structure. What kind of company you're going to be? An LLC, a, you know, S corp, C corp. You need to talk to your tax attorneys and advisors and all that. Your your accountant about what your best legal structure is. Most people, it's an LLC. Um, you know, you got to have a website. You know, you need a presence nowadays. Your social media it needs to all be consistent, congruent, and look professional. Dress shirt, sport coat. If you're going to be raising capital, the better you look, the sharper you look, the easier it is. Um, uh, some people, you know, their style works for them, however it works. But generally, for people to take you serious, you need to look serious. You need to know what you're doing. You need to have a presence. So you want to start with all that. And of course, the name, like when I started my business, I started with a name, I started with a brand. And, uh, you know, I had a phone number, and it was all out there and, and it company color, the whole nine yards. I wrote down what the company was going to do, what it was going to be like. And as I went along over the years, you know, I constantly revised my business plan. And this was back before computers. I mean, I didn't even use a computer till probably 2000. So I had a yellow notepad where all my business plans were written on. And I would write my numbers down on my notepad and reverse engineer my break even so that I knew what I needed to generate every day in sales to keep the company going. Um, and I had all the team written down. So one of them was business and sales. The other one was the team. Who are the parts and pieces? What did that organization need to look like? What did it, who did I need to have in order for that organization to become what I wanted it to be as it went along? So if I wanted to be a million dollar company, who did I need to have and what positions to get there? When I wanted to go to 5 million, same thing. When I wanted to go to 10 million and now I'm doing all these other deals, who are the people I need? What do they need to be doing? And what does that structure need to look like? So I had my notepads over the years and I've still got them where I wrote down these little business plans um, over the years as the company evolved and I saved all that. And it's, you know, it's really interesting. And then when it moved to the computer, um, you know, all that became spreadsheets and I had a CFO and all that kind of stuff. And the projections were all done there. So, you know, no matter what, are the, what, it, what it is, if it's a business, if it's a you know, enterprise, if it's a, a real estate deal, you need a plan that you can execute on so that you can measure your performance as you're working towards that goal. I mean, that's fascinating. It's, it, it, it seems so simple, but also it's, it's, it's complicated, right? You know, there, there's a lot of factors that go into to just starting a company and starting a business, whatever that, you know, the endeavor is. Um, and, uh, but it also starts with, with the vision part of it. And I, I, for me, it was hard to have that in mind because I was just focused on getting the real estate and getting money from the real estate, right? It wasn't as much of a Hey, what am I? What do I? What does it actually look like in a year, five years, ten years from now? You know, kind of what are the key, you know, the key factors that I need involved with this? And and I definitely show because let's see, I got started in in nineteen. A couple months after that, you know, I had a deal under contract, and I had I had nothing set up for it, right? I pretty much had it under contract. Didn't have you know the the net worth and have liquidity. Didn't have any you know the vendors set up for it. It was a completely different state. Um, you know, and ultimately it was, it, I ended up only losing about five grand on it, but it was a very important lesson learned about, Hey, you know, it's more than just, I want this. So I need to go do it. It's like, I want this. I need to have these five things in order to do it. Once those five things are in order, then I can go, then I can go do it. Um, you know, and, and like you said, having a name, having a presence is so big now because anyone, when I first meet you are going to go Google you. Right. And I think that's, you know, I actually saw you, you went to our website and, and, you know, look at the deal packets and all that, right? So that's the first thing that people do nowadays is they'll just Google you, especially if they don't know you as a person. Uh, I think that's vitally important that it's more than just, you know, you're LinkedIn and you actually have a website that actually links. Because, um, you know, for me, when I have uh, my, uh, my, um, my VA go and look for podcast guests, that's one of the first things they do. And it, 
it surprises me how often you go to someone's LinkedIn where they look like they're, you know, actively involved in a business and real estate and like none of their links work, right? Their social media is, is down, their website doesn't link. Um, and how simple it is to just to just fix that and, and, and kind of be different. But I think yeah, it the, really the does, worst thing in the you know, world too is, you know, having an e having a Gmail address or something like that versus your company email address, you know, so right. A lot of people don't even think about that. And then, then they'll have an email address with a company name and then the domain doesn't work. So, you know, I do my due diligence on people and, you know, if somebody sends me an email and it's a business proposition or whatever, you know, whatever it is, I'll, I'll check that domain name and make sure. And nine times out of 10, it's just a dead web page. They don't even, I mean, you can put up a free GoDaddy website in about 10 minutes that will make you look like you have a professional organization behind that email address. So, you know, it's the little things that make the biggest difference, you know, but it's easy right now because there's a lot of capital out there. Everybody wants to get in the game. So a lot of people can get away with sloppiness, you know, when things are so red hot and robust right now. But at the end of the day, you know, the solid operators are the ones that are going to succeed and rise to the top and, you know, roll through these times when the market contracts because it will contract. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really good point that you bring up. You know, it's um, it's easy to be good at this right now, right? It's easy to buy property and watch it appreciate whether you do nothing with it or not, right? It's easy to cash flow from, well, relatively easy, right? Nowadays, I think a lot of people are spending a lot of money on, on deals that don't make any sense, but uh, for the it's most part- It's getting tougher, but yeah, the last 10 years, almost anybody right. could just bump into a building and make money with it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So so knowing that and knowing that something's kind of coming in the future, you know, it's, it's, it's I think it's vitally important that you have those, those business fundamentals set up with your company and have a track record as well. Right. Um, so, so on the raising capital side of things, you know, it's, I found that it's relatively easy now because there's a lot of people throwing money uh, into in deals, particularly in real estate, um, you know, inflation resistant head and a hedge against inflation. Uh, but, you know, once that kind of turns around, you're really going to have to fall back on your, on your fundamentals for raising capital. So, you know, for someone who, you know, may have a deal or is just getting started or really just has the business name and like the LLC set up, uh, but they don't really have the experience. You know, what's, what's your recommendation or, or uh, some advice on how to go about raising capital, regardless of what the market conditions are like? You know, it's a contact sport. It's a, it's a networking game. So, you know, if you want to be able to raise capital, you have to have a big database. You got to be constantly talking to people, constantly meeting people. And just letting them know what you do and what the opportunities are. And, you know, you don't want to be overbearing and go network and just spend your whole time telling everybody what you do. You just want to talk about what it is you do and just kind of, you know, leave it out there and, and people, you know, will ask you. So, so that's kind of in a casual way if you're going in-person networking. Um, you can have a content strategy like you're doing here through podcasts, YouTube, social media, educating people, sharing what it is that you do because people are interested in real estate and they want to be part of the deal. So, you know, at the very base level, you just need to let people know what it is you're doing, show them that you know what you're doing, show them that you're an expert. Um, you know, if, if you're not an expert in all areas, then you, you know, show them that you have a team who is, uh, that specialize in the different areas, but raising capital specifically, you know, it's a team, not a team sport, it's a, it's a contact sport, it's a networking game. And, you know, the more people that you reach and the more people that you bring into your um, database, you know, uh, that are looking to invest, then the more opportunity you're going to have to be able to place that capital. And it's a, it's a constant thing. You need to constantly be adding to that network, staying in touch with them, keeping them warm, letting them know what you're doing and show them the deals, you know, um, your website, 
one of the first things I tell everybody is, hey, you need to have a sample deal package ready to go, an investor portal where people can sign up. They can already look at you know, what a sample deal looks like, not just the deal deck, but the subscription agreement, the offering memorandum, um, you know, everything that they need to be able to, um, you know, wire that money when the time comes, you know, frequently answered questions and video formats, great, so that you can, you know, however you want to do that so that people can get comfortable with you, get to know, like, and trust you before they ever meet you, talk to you. So all of that should be up front for people if you're talking about a system so that they can get into your system, get to know you, they have all of their questions answered before they ever reach out. So when you do have a deal, it's, it's very easy for them to go ahead and, uh, you know, participate with you. So, uh, you know, that's really what it's all about. And, you know, at the end of the day, you don't get what you don't ask for. So, um, you know, if you want to be able to raise money, you have to ask for it. So uh, you need a big network and then you got to let them know what you need and what you're looking for. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how it works. And, and it's a reverse engineer. So you need to say, look, if I'm, if I want to be a hundred million dollar company, I need to be able to raise X a million, X millions of dollars, you know, in equity and, and on and on and on. And, you know, it's a business plan, like anything else, you put that down and you say, look, my network average investor has 50 grand they can invest. And I want to raise 10 million bucks. You need to reverse engineer that. And that tells you how many people you need to reach. And there's going to be a ratio in your database that you're going to find that out of every, you know, X amount of dollars, million dollars worth of commitments, you know that, you know, so many are going to fund. So you know that you're going to need to raise X, you know, or have in your database X amount more than what you think you need to raise because, you know, everybody's interested till the, till it's time to wire the cash. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really good point. Cause that's, uh, that happened to us on the, on the first deal, you know, we thought we had uh, like 1.5 raised and suddenly that turned into half of that. Is everyone, you know, suddenly we, uh, you know, had a whole bunch of people soft commit and then people just started dropping like flies after that when the money had to actually start coming in. So I think that's a really good point. And uh, it's, it's almost oversubscribe, right? On, on any deal that you end up doing is oversubscribing, whether that's raising for a particular property or just in general, because, uh, you know, there's not, not almost. You want to, you yeah. want to oversubscribe on every deal so that number one, your investors know, hey, you know, there's a demand. Number two, you know that you have, you know, exponentially more than you need. And the last thing you want to do is just rely on somebody saying, yeah, I'm in. And then you think, oh, okay, I got the money because it's not going to show up. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was a, that's an important lesson learned uh, when we first got started is like, be, know who's actually, you know, real and who's actually going to put the money in and like stay on top of them to get it in. Cause it's, it's been, been some times where you get to the final, you know, week or so and people still are kind of dragging their feet. Um, but, you know, I think that's, that's uh, how much you prep your investors for what's coming down the line, right? And how much you keep them, you know, oiled and, and content coming and, and keep them on the line. Because it's easy to say, hey, you know, two months ago, this person said that they were willing to put in, you know, a million dollars. And then two months later, you realize that they already invested that in something else, right? without telling you um, or without really touching them because you, you won't, you weren't interacting with them on a, on a regular enough basis. Yeah. And that's your investor portal, you know, so your investor portals, you can track your, you know, investable commitments in there, you know, people can pledge what they're looking to invest and then they can log in and change that number uh, if something changes so that you got to have, you know, you have an idea of what you have available potentially. And then you need to know what you've deployed out of that. So that, you know, if you had $10 million worth of potential and you've deployed half of that, well, you need, you need to go raise another five more if you need 10 the next time. So um, it's a business, it, you know, it's a business. And if you operate it like a business and you're serious about it, it's just a matter of having systems and process. And it's a constant, constant thing. You never stop raising capital and every successful, 
you know, enterprise like that needs somebody or somebody's out there constantly raising capital, you know, like you see Grant Cardone doing, and, you know, um, he's just out there and prolific. Everybody kind of knows who he is, but, you know, when you start getting the next level, like you said, you're in, you know, you're into the black, you know, Blackstone or Black Rocks and companies like that, they're doing the same thing at the very high institutional levels. You know, they have people that that's all they do all day, every day is travel the world, um, working with investors and, and keeping them up to date and maintaining those relationships and, you know, raising more capital. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really important lesson to, to think about is like, hey, it, it doesn't it doesn't end, right? It doesn't stop, particularly if you want to scale your business, right? It's more than just, hey, you know, I raised $5 million for this property. Let me just kind of rest on their laurels. Like, if you want to keep going, like you need to keep the, the trumpet going, you need to keep the momentum going. Because, you know, as much as you, you have, you know, 10 people say that they're investing with you, if you don't talk with them for six months, they're probably not going to be willing anymore, right? Um, so that's, I think that's a really important lesson for that I had as well as, Hey, like once you get people on the hook, like you got to keep coming back to them and keep raising and, and keep pushing, pushing, meeting new people is you never know when the next deal is going to come down the line and you need to like, you know, pull the, pull the trigger and start getting these people, uh, you know, putting their going hard on their, on their capital. So let me ask you this before we get into the, uh, the snapshot round, um, you know, Outside of that, you know, uh, capital raising being a contact sport, and, and obviously the, the numbers, it really do matter how many people you end up talking with. Um, but let's get into the mindset part of that, because you know, I think it's it's um, it's relatively easy to say, hey, I need to have I need to talk to 100 people per day. And then I know 10 percent of them are actually going to you know, want to soft command. And out of that, maybe one one guy actually puts in money. Um, but it's a different thing to say, hey, you know, these are people I'm talking with that, you know, I want to raise capital from, um, and that may be some that may be scary or frightening or uh, overbearing for a lot of people who are just getting started. So, from the mindset point of view, you know, how do you go about uh, starting raising capital and keep that mindset going? So it goes back to what we first started talking about. You're looking for a problem because you have an opportunity that solves that problem. So you're providing value in a marketplace where there's a problem. People have money they need to put to work, especially retirees in this day and age. There's no yield out there for people that have savings. Um, you know, so you, you have an opportunity for them to grow their wealth. So you're providing an extremely valuable service. There's a lot of people looking to participate. So a lot of people think of it as, you know, what you said, I'm looking for capital. Capital is looking for great operators. There's tons of capital looking for good operators for good homes. I mean, I, have, I get people calling me all the time. Hey, you know, who do you know that I can invest with? Now they're looking for people that have been in the business a long time, you know, that kind of thing with a long track record and stuff and that are, you know, buttoned up tight organizations. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of capital out there looking, looking um, for yield and looking for a place to go. So you're providing an opportunity. You're providing a service that's needed in the marketplace. And there's a couple of ways to do that. So, in this day and age, you want to be able to, to speak to as many potential investors as you can at one time. So number one, have your website systems set up so that um, you've got your deal packages, you've got your you know, frequently asked questions, you've got your offering mem memorandum, subscription agreements, you know, legal docs, all that stuff that they need to look at and tell them, look, go vet this stuff with your, with your attorneys, your accountants and all that so that you understand how it works. Explain how the tax you know, benefits work you know, what they're going to be looking at there. So you want to answer all those questions up front before they even talk to anybody. And then if you have a machine and you're marketing and you're bringing, you know, 
um, a lot of leads in, then you can do it. Um, you can do Zoom calls where you're talking to 100 people at one time instead of one person. Um, and, you know, dialogue and interact with people in that environment. You can do live events. You can go to networking meetings and speak to groups. So you want to try to, when you think about raising capital at scale, you want to do more of that. So number one, not only are you reaching more people at one time, so now you can talk to thousands of people a week versus just, you know, a hundred, uh, but you're also positioning yourself as an authority. So whenever you speak to a group and you present, you're perceived as an authority. So, um, you know, those are the types of things you can do to really scale your capital raising efforts. So it's not one-on-one. Um, and then of course, there's other tools out there that you can use that are, you know, to automate, you know, in terms of scheduling one-on-ones, having an automatic scheduling system, you know, things like that to really optimize your time. But, you know, at the end of the day, you want to be perceived, you know, the more exclusive you are, the more exclusive you become. So you want to be perceived as that your time is of high value and such high value that you just don't have time to talk one-on-one with somebody who wants to invest, you know, 50 or hundred thousand or even $500,000. Now, if you want to invest 10 million, sure, I'll sit down with you. Let's go have lunch and let's talk about it. But, you know, if you're under a million, you know, I, I, we, just, we just don't have the time. Let's get 10 people together that have a million and we'll talk to all 10 of you, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. Uh, and again, lesson learned from my own experiences, uh, you know, when we first started raising for our first uh, multifamily apartment, I was doing one-on-one, you know, calls with people and I was still over here in Japan. And so I was trying to schedule that at, you know, five, six, you know, seven o'clock in the morning here. And, you know, it got to the point where it was like, oh my gosh, I'm getting the same questions asked over and over again. I'm pitching the same deal, right? I'm having, you know, the, the, it's going to taking the same amount of time. I was just like, it never dawned on me until I got through like, you know, 50 investors. I might as well just do a webinar, right? Just put it out there. And then now when people ask and say, I can just literally just send them a link and they can watch it on their own time, right? You know, it's, it's not, it's not taking up my time, answering the same questions, going through the same, the same deal. Um, and I think, you know. Yeah. And they may still want to talk to you one-on-one and that's, that's where you do a group event and say, look, you know, here, watch all this stuff. You know, these all the frequently asked questions. And then for the relationship component, uh, and it makes other people feel better too, that there's other people around, then you can do live, you know, webinar, live Zooms like this with 10, 20, 30, 100 people, whatever, and have that live interaction as well. You know, if somebody you know, wants to get comfortable with you. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, an awesome point there. Um, all right, Greg, uh, are you ready to get into the uh, snapshot round? Yep, let's do it. All ahead, blank, cavitate, snapshot, tube, tube. All right, first question for you. What is your number one failure in real estate? Well, uh, when I first started out, I got taken advantage of by a partner um, and I didn't put everything detailed in writing about what we were gonna do, what his role was, what my role was, but that was the most valuable lesson I ever learned. But I didn't put the partnership arrangements in writing and I got taken advantage of. Mm. Yeah, that's that's huge. Uh, As a prior active duty investor or veteran investor, uh, what advice do you have for other military investors to be successful? Start now, you know, start learning your market, learning the business, whatever it is you want to do, start educating yourself, learn, learn now and just take action and start small and grow from there. You don't have to start huge. You don't have to have all of it figured out, but you do need to know what you're doing. You do need to educate yourself and you need to get started. So as small as it, uh, you know, as you want, and then go from there. Perfect. All right. What inspired you to serve your country? I just, you know, I'm very passionate about, you know, my country and our country, and I wanted to serve our country. Uh, it was just a rite of passage for me, but more than anything else, I'm an ardent patriot. Uh, you know, I will, I will 
you know, um, go to the call if, if and when there's ever one, if we went to war right now and they're calling people to arms, I'm there, you know, I'm in, I will, you know, I'll give my life for this country and the freedoms that we have and everybody in it, whether they believe in it or not. Love it. All right. And the last question for you, Greg, what is your dream? My dream is to be able to impact as many lives as possible before I leave this planet. So everything I do nowadays, it's all about impact. Uh, it's all about giving back, impacting, helping other people um, accomplish whatever it is that they were put on this planet to do. And I'm trying to accomplish what I was put on this planet to do, which is to help others impact others. And it's kind of what I've done my whole career in every business, every deal, every, every venture I've been involved in. It's, it's, looking at the, the butterfly effect of the impact. Uh, that's what, that's what excites me. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're very, very good at it and you've been doing it for a long time. So I, I can definitely tell why, you know, why you've been successful and why you've been able to help your clients and, and, uh, you know, um, your coaching clients be so successful as well. Um, so, you know, with all that in mind, you've been a tremendous guest. I really appreciate it. You shared a lot of wisdom and a lot of advice. Um, you know, I think that's even just scratching the surface of, of your experience in real estate and everything else. So I, I, I'm sure that people will want to reach out to you. So where can they go to learn more about you and, and get in contact with you? Yeah, so gregdickerson.com. All my information is there. I've got a YouTube channel with tons of videos, different playlists on residential, commercial, multifamily, economy, finance, cryptocurrencies. You know, I talk about entrepreneurship, all kinds of different things. So tons of info on YouTube. Um, you know, I also have it in podcast format and then all my social media, everything gets put out there. So gregdickerson.com, it's all there. Perfect. We'll, uh, we'll include that in the show notes as well. Awesome. All right, Greg, I really appreciate you sharing your time here today and your wisdom and, and your advice and your experience. Uh, I think it's really going to help a lot of people, whether they're, you know, first time investors or experienced investors, uh, make sure that they're growing their business one and then scaling their business correctly. Cause uh, I think uh, we're a lot to, we're about to see uh, who, who actually has a good business and who doesn't have a good business when, whenever this market ends up correcting itself. So I think it's going to be by, hey, you know, bad times never last. Good times never last. Uh, but the key is get started, start wherever you can with what you can and just get started. Momentum breeds momentum, success breeds success. Uh, it's just like working out. You just, you take that first step and the next one gets easier and it gets easier. And you know, as you go along, you, you condition yourself for success. Perfect. Love it. Awesome. Greg, I hope you have a great rest of your day and please stay safe back in the States. Thanks for listening. If you are a military investor and found this episode of the Lessons in Real Estate show packed with great information, tell your friends and leave a five-star rating on your listening platform. Every comment is read and appreciated. Don't forget to check out our weekly episodes of PCI Teaches, brought to you by Pinto Capital Investments. Learn about basic and advanced topics in real estate investing. Catch updates on Anthony's journey through learn and teach segments and listen to the tales of other military investors and real estate professionals every week. We'll catch you next time on the Lessons in Real Estate show.